International Telecommunications Union, or ITU, which is an agency within the United Nations that is focused on internet things, put out a press release in early December 2018, announcing that for the first time ever, more than half the world's population will be using the internet by the end of 2018, an estimated 51.2%. 51.2% represents about 3.9 billion people worldwide, and 90% of that 3.9 billion people have access to 3G or higher speed networks, which is good, but not great. For context, 3G was in vogue here in the United States. Back in the early smartphone days of 2007, the iPhone was infamous for being a late adopter in this regard, actually, releasing their iPhone 3G in 2008 about a year after many Android phones already had 3G capabilities. But the point here is that 3G allows folks to do very basic mobile internet things, but it doesn't fully integrate those who are on it, who are using such speeds, which is practically capped at around 384 kilobytes per second in most real-world situations using the most basic version of the 3G standard, to tap into the modern internet which has been and is being built to serve those with higher speed access. Try to load a modern website or app on an outdated connection, and you'll see what I'm talking about as you wait the better part of a minute for the homepage to load all of the graphics and scripts that those with higher speed access can download in just a few seconds. The positive here, though, is that an internet connection of any kind is available for that many people. In many places around the world, the infrastructure is technically there, but the access is still out of reach for the majority of the local population. So over half is still pretty good. But even though 96% of the global human population lives within range of some kind of internet signal, a lot of people within range of those signals are not able to tap into it for various reasons. Folks on the African continent in particular are not necessarily able to afford access to local bandwidth because gigabyte-capped data packages, as of the day I'm recording this, can go for as much as $35.47 in Equatorial Guinea, which is about 5.5% of a person's total monthly income. Just access the internet, and chances are the signal that they will receive for that super high fee will be well below the 10 megabits per second that is generally considered to be the minimum speed required to participate in the modern digital economy, to play games, to watch videos, to partake in e-commerce and ride-sharing, things like that. Now that said, much of today's worldwide internet growth is happening in African countries. 3.6% of families in African countries had access to a computer in 2005, and that is up to 9.2% in 2018, while internet penetration as a whole increased from 7.7% in 2005 up to 45.3% at the end of 2018. Much of that access costing far more than the ITU's recommended maximum price of 2% of a person's monthly income, and much of it far slower than the aforementioned low threshold of 10 megabits per second to fully partake in the wonders of the modern online economy. 
but it's still not nothing. And it's growing fast, especially in areas where there are two or more internet providers, which incentivizes more investment in fiber optic infrastructure and tends to lower the prices locally substantially, often by as much as half. What I want to talk about today is the increasing gap between haves and have-nots in the world of internet access. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Can you imagine never having seen a YouTube video? Never having downloaded an app, never having sent an email, never having checked a social media profile for likes and messages and updates, never having gotten angry about something on Twitter, never having Googled for the answer to a health question, never having asked Alexa about the weather, summoned a ride on Uber, or found precisely the right GIF for a particular text-based conversation. It's strange to think about, but important to recognize that there are a great many people in the world who have never done any of these things. To these people, the idea of a meme, or likes, or gifs, or apps, are borderline nonsensical. And the idea that so many of us would spend so much of our time buried in our devices, plugged into these mysterious little rectangles, is confounding. It's bizarre. Some of these unconnected people are intentionally unconnected perhaps aware to some degree of what the online world entails. And because of that understanding, they've decided to opt out of it for one reason or another. Maybe it's philosophical, maybe it's about stress or the desire to be alone, maybe it's about focus, maybe it's more about wanting to spend their time doing other things and recognizing that these devices and the network to which they connect us tend to siphon away that time and attention in a nearly addictive fashion. For others, though, the digital realm is a mystery because they've simply never had access to it. You can picture a traditional tribal scenario with huts and a campfire and folks wearing handmade clothing when I say that. And you'd be part right. A lot of people living more traditional lifestyles are among those who lack the infrastructure or wherewithal to participate in the online world. But that's not universal. There are agrarian communities living in some of the farthest flung parts of the world who, despite their rurality and traditional lifestyles, make smart use of technologies like smartphones to help them sell crops, track weather, communicate with each other across vast distances, and achieve a better understanding of the world beyond their immediate geographic concerns. And when it comes to the unconnected, there are as many people, in aggregate at least, who live in Europe, in the US, in the UK, who, for economic reasons, do not access the internet in any of its many permutations, and who function, for most intents and purposes, just fine without it. Yes, the world pressures them to join up, but they either cannot spare the money for a device or connection plan, or the community that they're part of does not require them to be part of that online network, so they don't see the point. In a lot of cases, those two attributes go hand in hand. An area does not have affordable or reliable internet access, and the local community, as a consequence, learns to live without it. Perhaps tells themselves stories that imply that it's a choice they've made. But the reality, quite often, is that as soon as a new communication tower is built and access becomes abundant, many people drop that ideology and log in to see what all the fuss is about. They become quick converts to the phone-based religion next door. 
Even in these scenarios, though, there are plenty of people whose resources are otherwise occupied, or who decide to remain without internet infrastructure, leaving them either underserved or unserved when it comes to affordable, reliable, high-speed internet access, which, in today's world, a world that is quickly shifting to favor the digital over the tangible, that means these people are unable to participate in some of the most vital conversations in the world today their voices unheard, and those of others unheard by them. The article I want to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Digital Divide is Wider Than We Think, Study Says. This piece addresses the bandwidth gap between many rural and urban dwellers here in the United States. And this divide exists despite the fact that the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, says that only about 24.7 million Americans lack broadband high-speed internet access. Another study by Microsoft, though, came to the conclusion that although there may technically be some kind of nearby access to broadband throughout most of the country, Around 162.8 million Americans do not use broadband internet speeds. This second collection of research also indicated that the FCC's measurement methods are not great, as they consider a particular region to be fully served by broadband speeds if only a single building in that region has a solid signal or plugged-in access. So if the local hospital has broadband, but no one else in the region does, that community is considered, for the purposes of the FCC, to be fully connected. Which makes measuring this kind of thing easier, no doubt, but it also kind of distorts the issue that they're supposed to be taking stock of here. Now the distinction between having internet access and having high-speed internet access is important. I did an episode not long ago about the impending arrival of 5G wireless internet speeds. And in that episode, I used the analogy of a bullet being thrown versus a bullet being fired out of a gun. Those two modes of propulsion are technically the same. Both are moving a bullet from one place to another, but the speed at which they move that bullet matters a great deal. It completely changes the dynamic of what's happening, of what's possible of the consequence of moving that bullet. The same is true when it comes to the speed at which data is transmitted to people and their devices. Technically, using semaphore, using flags to communicate across distances, is fundamentally the same as the internet. You're moving data from one place to another, but flag waving is very different in practice and in what it enables when compared to doing the same online. Likewise, slower internet speeds allow a great deal of functionality that flag-waving does not, and higher-speed broadband internet allows users to do things that their slow-speed neighbors may not even know is possible. So if you have broadband and your neighbor is stuck using some kind of dial-up or 3G service, your experience of the online world will almost certainly be very different from theirs. But making this comparison between low-speed and high-speed internet is somewhat reliant on the assumption that internet access of any kind is available in a particular area, which is not always the case. This Times piece talks about Ferry County in the state of Washington, where, although the FCC notes that 100% of the inhabitants should have access to broadband internet, in reality, only about 2% of people thereabouts use it. And this isn't a huge community. There are about 7,500 residents in the county. But the reality of their local internet infrastructure means that most of those 7,500 people have to drive into town to connect to the internet. They go to the library and visit restaurants to download software updates. They sit at fast food establishments in order to do their homework. 
They cannot shop at Amazon from home or communicate using any internet-tethered service from outside the main drag of their county. Many of us, especially those who listen to podcasts, by the way, as statistically, you are a relatively tech-savvy demographic, so congratulations on that. But many of us have come to take for granted that our devices are not dumb in the sense that they interact with information beyond their physical housing. They grab news headlines and music and, yes, podcasts, among other media, and software updates and communications and all kinds of other useful data for us all day, every day. They are not isolated from the outside world because of these ever-present connections that they have. And as a consequence, we are seldom isolated as well. The internet was not always so ubiquitous and ever-present, but it definitely tends to be today, and our devices and infrastructure are set up with that in mind. And that is the case in part because of a series of government acts that funded expanded internet infrastructure, starting with the High Performance Computing and Communication Act of 1991, which funded a collection of research and educated related networks, which in turn led to all kinds of wonderful innovations, including the Mosaic web browser and the creation of high-speed fiber-optic computer networks. These early bits of infrastructure served as a catalyst for the eventual adoption of the internet by the everyday person, rather than just academics and scientists. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 was the next big move in this space by the U.S. government, and it led to the creation of a Universal Service Fund, which was created to fund infrastructure and ideas that would help nudge the country into what had become known as the Information Age. Part of that nudge was the requirement that all telecommunications companies contribute to this fund, which would initially invest in four main facets of infrastructure— high-cost investments, low-income areas, rural healthcare assets, and schools and libraries, which is also referred to as the E-rate program, the latter of which was intended to ensure schools and libraries around the country would have internet access available at far lower rates than other entities, so they would receive discounts ranging from 20 to 90 percent off the cost of that internet access, depending on the poverty levels and population densities where they are located. And the rural healthcare focus was intended to do the same for hospitals and other healthcare providers in rural regions, helping them jumpstart telehealth and telemedicine services so locals could still have access to healthcare resources, even if they lived hours from anything and anyone. Another big shot in the arm for U.S. internet infrastructure, emerged in 2009 as part of a larger stimulus bill. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 included funding for a $4.7 billion broadband technology opportunities program within the Department of Commerce, which was intended to bring high-speed internet to unserved and underserved areas and to get people using that high-speed internet. There was also another $2.5 billion that was earmarked for use by the Department of Agriculture, which they were tasked to use for similar purposes, to help bring broadband to rural and highly agrarian-focused areas. And the FCC was tasked with developing a national broadband plan within a year, which they did, and which they first released for comment in April of 2009, before they started to implement it in March of 2010. This plan, all things considered, was fairly humble in scope, 
It said that at least 100 million U.S. homes should have affordable access to internet that provides them with actual, practical download speeds of at least 100 megabits per second. And that's real speeds, not the often BS speeds that internet providers will use in their marketing materials as the potential theoretical top speeds that they could maybe, in some fantastical perfect scenario, provide us with. It says that every American should have affordable access to reliable broadband services and the knowledge required to sign up for and use those services. It says that institutions like schools and hospitals and government buildings should have affordable access to at least one gigabit service, and that first responders should have a resilient and reliable safety network that they can use. It also says that Americans should be able to use broadband to track and manage their real-time energy consumption as part of the country's efforts to lead in the clean energy economy. From that last point, you can probably see that, as of 2018 at least, this plan came from a different political and cultural era with different dominant politics and leaders. U.S. citizens being able to use high-speed internet access to keep tabs on our energy usage is still technically on the docket, but there hasn't been real movement in that space for a while now. And there's one more point on that plan, too, that we are not doing so great with. One that says the U.S. should lead the world in mobile innovation with the fastest and most extensive wireless networks of any nation. And that, of course, has not been the case. For a long while now, the U.S., despite having invented the Internet, has lagged behind other nations when it comes to Internet access, speeds, costs, and overall resiliency. And that lag has led to a situation in which, according to a recent study by Pew Research, about 11% of Americans do not use the internet at all for anything. That means, statistically, in a random group of 10 people living in the United States, one of them not only does not have a Facebook page, they don't have an email address, an online bank account, they've never bought something from Amazon or streamed something from Netflix, they may have a smartphone and may have a computer, but if they do, they're not connected to anything external. They're air-gapped from the rest of the world. Their phone plan perhaps limited just to traditional phone connectivity, if that. A previous study done by Pew back in 2013 discovered that of the respondents who didn't use the internet back then, 34% said that they didn't go online because they had no interest in it or thought that it wasn't relevant to their lives. 32% said the internet was too difficult to use, and 8% said that they were, quote, too old to learn, end quote. There's also an economic element to this story. 19% of non-internet users in that study said that the expense of internet services or the costs of acquiring and owning a computer or smartphone were a factor in their decision not to use the internet. Notably, that 11% figure is way, way lower than the 48% of Americans who said that they did not use the internet back in the year 2000. So access levels are much higher than they were 19 years ago. But the increase in internet usage since then, despite being substantial, has not been evenly distributed. About a third of Americans aged 65 years or older still say that they don't use the internet for whatever reason. And though that number is 7% less than it was in 2016, it's still a far cry from the usage found in other age demographics. Like, for instance, 18 to 29 year olds, a demo within which 98% of people are internet users. Only 2% said that they do not, for whatever reason, log on. 
We also see differences in usage between educational demographics, with 35% of Americans who have attained less than a high school education not going online. And those usage numbers are similar to those of people who come from families who earn less than $30,000 a year. 19% of folks from lower-earning families do not use the internet, compared to only 2% of those in the above 30k a year group who say the same. So lower education and lower income correlate with lower internet usage. One of the most significant factors in whether or not someone uses the internet, though, is whether they live in a rural area. Those who live in lower population density regions are more than twice as likely as otherwise demographically similar people to not use the internet. Meaning, all else being equal in terms of age, income, gender, self-identified racial group, and everything else, if you live in a more rural part of the United States, you are twice as likely to not be an internet user as your doppelganger who lives in the city or the suburbs. The implications of this may not be immediately apparent, but consider for a moment how much of modern culture, of modern business, of modern communication and information dissemination and resources and tools are digital, are available online and nowhere else. Folks who don't use the internet are reliant on other non-digital tools to get their news. They watch more cable TV and listen to talk radio. They are not able to fact check or search for additional information as easily as those who are plugged into the net. And they don't have as many options when it comes to entertainment, education, experimentation, and connection with other human beings. Up-to-the-minute information in particular is difficult to get reliably via non-internet sources. And the business models and gatekeepers found in non-internet media make it a lot less likely that you will see people from certain groups, ideas that will not appeal to a massive mainstream audience, and perspectives that deviate from the regional norm on those television sets, radios, and printed newspapers. I personally find that it's difficult to remember, sometimes, what life was even like on a practical level before some of the online tools that I've come to take for granted existed and became common. Now, there's nothing inherently more moral or correct about having a little device in my car telling me through my car's speakers where to turn, how to avoid an accident up ahead, and which side of the street my destination will be on. But it is wildly convenient and gives me all kinds of advantages over a younger version of myself from the past who did not have access to Google Maps and Bluetooth and smartphones. These technologies provide me with conveniences that imbue my life with countless underappreciated little benefits that I seldom even notice anymore because they've become so baked into the structure of society and the way things are done. It's no wonder that the world seems so confounding, so bewildering to people who maybe catch the rare whiff of concepts like memes and gifs on the cable news show that they watch each day, but who have never seen one and never experienced the underlying technologies that these new everyday realities rely upon. A meme or a gif without an understanding of the mobile internet, of smartphones, of emojis, and text messages, and Snapchat, and social networks, and selfies, and all the rest must seem beyond bizarre. The world probably seems like it's gone haywire to folks who have missed or skipped this quickly evolving era of technological evolution and integration. 
some of the consequences of this, beyond that befuddlement and increased perceived ostracization from the mainstream culture, which is, to me anyway, totally understandable, thinking about things from that angle, is that because of the shift that's been taking place, a lot of what's left on these older technologies, on in-the-moment television and radio shows, for instance, has a very different character from what it had back in those mediums' heyday. When there were four channels on American television, for instance, all the money for all products, corporations, and entertainment-related operations were fed into those four channels, more or less. It was between those channels and radio films that you could watch at the theater and printed newspapers and books. That was pretty much it. So if you consumed media via those channels, you were seeing all that there was to see. You were up on everything, more or less. Today, though, if you only consume regular wired television, listen to the radio, maybe go to the movie theater from time to time, and read printed media, think of all the things that you're missing out on. All the cultural references, all the in-jokes, all the significant moments in media history, all the up-to-the-minute news and deep reads and experimental formats and conversations between people who and about things which have not always been terribly well represented in those traditional mediums for a variety of reasons. The world must look like it's becoming a paler, watered-down version of itself because the same effort is not invested in those older mediums anymore. It's being relegated elsewhere, and these people are not seeing the consequences of all that redirected effort and all those redirected resources. It's possible, then, for a technological divide of this kind to amplify the perceived divides between groups of people, because people on either side of that digital divide are viewing the world through radically different lenses. They're being fed completely different information diets, experiencing the world in radically different ways through different mediums and being exposed to completely different ideas, art, ideologies, and personalities. People who lack access to these systems, these tools, these resources, are also at a stark disadvantage when it comes to the modern economy, to starting a business, to staying educated, so as to be prepared for newly emerging high-paying jobs, or to be prepared for when the job they currently have is no longer needed, or no longer as high-paying as it was. Those who have a sophisticated understanding of the internet are more capable of retraining, of learning what they need to know in the moment, YouTubing for instructions on how to make epic scrambled eggs or change the oil in their car, and are less vulnerable to seeming acts of God, to apparent whims of nature that are actually anything but. They're just adjustments in the way society and the economy operate. And those who are plugged in to those shifts as they happen because of up-to-the-minute news and everything else, rather than being hit with the consequences of them later, when those raindrops have become a flood, those people are more likely to have next-step plans already in place, and to be aware of what those steps should be and approximately when that flood will hit. Folks who are not connected, and who therefore lack that information, and the resources that are available to the rest of us, are hobbled in those same efforts, and are often understandably confused when the foundation they have long been standing on, which they had no reason to think was anything but secure, proved to be fragile and fracturing beneath their feet. Again, seemingly without notice because they were consuming slower and less complete and often more one-sided because of the business models involved, types of media. Now, all that said, there are definitely downsides that come with the upsides of being connected to this worldwide network and being connected as frequently and distractedly as some of us tend to be. It says something that many people who are plugged in 
to high-speed networks all day long, every day. Take digital sabbaticals and breaks from those networks. It can be overwhelming to be plugged in all the time, to be receiving that much information all the time. It can be nice to step back from it for a while, from time to time. That said, it's notable that most people eventually step back into that waterfall. They plug back in after they take those breaks or sabbaticals, partly because they miss the things that they can no longer do, capabilities they lose when not connected, and partly because those networks and tools allow us to compete in the modern economy, to earn money, to acquire new knowledge and tools and entertainment. And it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that we are often at a significant disadvantage if we do not have access to all those things. So the pros outweigh the cons for most people most of the time in most circumstances. Some wealthy or otherwise occupationally privileged people can afford to not worry about that, but in most cases, even if we don't always enjoy it, the rest of us kind of need those resources if we're going to survive and thrive, even when those very same tools sometimes detract and distract from our ability to thrive in some cases because of their latent nature, but also because of how we tend to use these tools and all of this information. In other words, some people are able to choose to step away from these tools, while others simply don't have access to them. And having access and making that choice, one way or another, seems to be more ideal than lacking access, as it means that we can pick and choose the bits that help us, that add to our lives in a positive way while figuring out how to dismiss those that don't. We can have that conversation, we can know enough about how these things work to eventually, over time, define what our equilibrium with them looks like. In some countries, today, internet access is considered to be a human right, with laws on the books that enshrine it as a resource that occupies a similar category of importance as clean water and air. The conversation that led to these new rights really kicked off worldwide in 2003, when the United Nations held the World Summit on the Information Society. The idea behind internet access as a right stems from the concept that such access helps level the playing field in a world in which a great deal of inequality exists. We might not all be born with the same monetary resources, the same families and health and physical abilities, or anything else, but we can all have access to the same informational and educational resources, the same communication capabilities, entertainment options, and things like that. And providing such things to absolutely everyone in a country is a relatively inexpensive option compared to the alternatives. It was considered to be a bonus that these tools are also positively correlated with things like human rights, the freedom of opinion and expression, the respect for fundamental freedoms of individuals, and other such democratic values. More access, more communication capabilities, more information and tools that allow us to create things in general tend to be seen as a net positive for the countries in which people have this type of access. And the world, according to the values of the United Nations at least, is better off because of the leveling effect of this network and these tools. The laws that make this digital human right a reality are uneven and they vary dramatically in their specifics. In Spain, for instance, the national telecom company, Telefonica, was required to provide affordable internet at speeds of at least 1 megabit per second to everyone in the country, beginning in 2011. 
Estonia, in contrast, has been building out publicly available Wi-Fi systems in rural areas since 2000 in an effort to make access to the internet universal for residents of their country. There was a UN resolution, a non-binding one, so it was more like a statement of things that would be nice than something that's actually enforceable, but there was a resolution in 2016 within the UN that condemned the intentional disruption of internet access by governments. It says something, I think, that one of the first moves by tyrants who are trying to cling to power in the face of popular uprising is to shut down the internet. It keeps their enemies from organizing, from sharing information, from getting news out to the public and the world, and it allows them, the gatekeepers, these government entities, the holders of all the keys, to shout their message from the top of their lungs while all other competing megaphones are silenced, at least for a time. As much as anything else, I think that aspect of the internet and internet-connected services and tools speaks volumes about why it can be so useful and why it's often considered to be a human right to so many thinkers and a handful of nations at the moment. It allows those without power to have some power. It allows an individual to speak truth to power and to do so in a forum where their words, their truths, sometimes at least, can have an impact. The internet can and has been used for the opposite as well, of course. The continued issues surrounding fake made-up news, the preponderance of nonsensical conspiracy theories, the ability of people in positions of power to shout lies from their many megaphones, the fact-checking of those lies traveling less far, shared less enthusiastically, than the emotion-stirring falsehoods. We've also seen some of the weapons provided to the masses to combat tyrants used against the wrong targets intentionally or unintentionally. We've seen mob justice leveled against the innocent almost as frequently as we've seen it take down legitimately untouchable-seeming horrible people and organizations. Like any tool, the internet is potentially dangerous in the wrong hands. And we don't know, yet anyway, what to do about that. Whether this is a feature or a bug of this technology, and whichever it is, how to make sure this component of this ecosystem works for us rather than against us, helps us become better versions of ourselves as individuals and societies rather than worse versions of the same. Many of us today, and I include myself in this group, definitely, are improved, enlightened, and empowered by these tools, just as we are challenged, and in some cases, hindered and depleted by them. Sometimes the negatives outweigh the positives, and our relationship with these features becomes something more akin to that of an addict to their drug of choice, rather than that of a mind being opened up to possibility and splendor, to ideas beyond their direct lived experiences and perspectives that they could not achieve in any other fashion. But still others are in a far different position, because of economics or culture, because of preconceived notion or taught bias that these tools, these networks, these possibilities, negative and positive, harmful and beneficial, are not for them, are not relevant to their lives, are not things that they can afford because of the circumstances that they find themselves in. It's difficult to say for certain whether the pros or cons of these systems, this network, will win out. I suspect it'll be a mixed bag for a long while yet, as we try to figure things out and innovate ourselves out of some of the holes that we have innovated ourselves into. 
but I also suspect that we'll be more capable of doing so, of achieving those positive outcomes, if we have more minds involved, applied to the problem, more perspectives available to share their insights and ideas, and more nodes in our societal and cultural web served and enabled and amplified and accounted for, given access to these same tools and benefits, and welcomed to the table. And I think that's true whether or not, after all of that access and exposure, they decide to continue using them. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi. And John Scalzi is actually better known for a series that he wrote called the Old Man's War series, which was kicked off by the wonderful and multiple award-winning book, Old Man's War. But this book is in a new series of his called The Interdependency, which is set in a universe in which there is a natural phenomenon that allows faster-than-light travel, and there is a multiple star-system-spanning empire that is set up between systems as a consequence of that naturally occurring phenomena. But within this empire, which is called the interdependency because they created a way to keep themselves from going to war with each other back in the day by making sure that they are all economically and resource reliant on each other, that phenomena is changing and changing those trade routes and changing their ability to interact with and communicate with each other. And as a consequence, they need to very quickly and dramatically change everything that they do if the human race is not going to die out as soon as those trade routes die out. So The Collapsing Empire is the first book in that series, and I just finished the second book in that series as well. It is also quite good. Scalzi is a great writer, and he is a writer in the tradition of spaceships and lasers type of science fiction, but he's very good at universe building as well. So the characters are quite good. The fundamentals and principles of the universe that he is writing these stories in is quite good. So if you're looking for something like that, The Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi is an excellent option. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. I'm currently on a speaking tour around North America. You can find details about that and get tickets, if applicable, at becomingtour.com. And you can find my new pseudo-advice column project at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. I am at Colin is my name on most of the social networks. Feel free to reach out and say howdy. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.